Why not? Here we go. Thank you for that, Jen. Let's bow and pray once more. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy it is to come and to hear your word this morning. May we be reminded of that. Lord, what a joy it is to hear your word this morning. Father, may we be reminded what a joy it is to hear the gospel this morning. Lord, I thank you for the privilege to preach this gospel. Lord, we we ask now that you would bring good fruit in us this morning. We pray that you would guard our minds and hearts now, that we would be attentive to your word, and that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit to take the seed of your word, to plant it deep within us, and to bring fruit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Perseverance is the badge of true saints. The Christian life is not a beginning only in the ways of God, but also a continuance in the same as long as life lasts. The words of Charles Spurgeon, Simply put, true faith is a faith that endures. You know, we we can't overstate the importance of perseverance in the Christian life. True faith is a faith by God's grace and through His strength that endures. And this morning in Genesis chapter 25, we see the end of Abraham's life. By God's grace, he finished well. As we've been tracking through his life in this series and Genesis, we've seen his failures, we've seen his flaws, but by God's grace, we've seen his faith grow. We've seen him mature in his faith, and we see the end of his life. By God's grace, he made it until the end. The destiny of every true believer, by the grace of God and through the power of his indwelling spirit, which he gives to all who repent and believe in Jesus, persevering until the end. And this morning, though, the the story turns, and we see the story of his son Isaac in the beginning of his generation, and immediately we see obstacles. But remember, true faith is a faith that endures. We've already seen that in the life of Abraham, and so we'll see it in the life of Isaac. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 25 that God supplies faith to endure. This chapter shows us a a picture of of faith that endures through trials. We see a picture here of a faith that trusts God's purpose and clings to His promises. If you want to turn in your pew Bible, take that pew Bible, turn to page 19 of your pew Bible. And if you come today, you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as our gift to you. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 25 this morning. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 18 first to help give us some context for this passage. And then we'll spend most of our time looking at the end of the chapter, verses 19 through 34. Let me read through verses 1 through 18 as we begin our time. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Leumum. The sons of Midian were Ephra, Ephah, Ephra, Hanak, Abida, and Aldea. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. 
These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. The Boath, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad. Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kinsmen. Well, for context in this passage, we see that since Sarah's death, Abraham remarried. Now, not exactly sure about the timeline, but I think that is what is happening here. He remarried, and we see in verses 2 through 3 that we had, he had six sons with Keturah. Many of those sons will go on to represent nations. In verse 4, we read of, of Midian, who will be a notable figure in the story of the Old Testament. Now, Abraham lived for 175 years, and in verse 8, we read that he died in a good old age. If those words or that phrase sounds familiar, it's because it is. That's the exact phrase the Lord used back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, that he promised Abraham he would die in a good old age. God called him out of Ur at 75 years old. What that means is for the last 100 years of his life, he lived as a traveler, a sojourner, yet he would be buried in his own piece of the promised land. That cave at Machpelah that we spent so much time on in Genesis chapter 23, we see that Abraham was buried there owning and possessing a piece of the promised land. The greater picture there, he died with his hope in God. He died clinging to the promises of God. Now, there are two genealogies that really serve as bookends on Abraham's life here in this chapter. The first genealogy is there in verses 1 through 4, six sons that he had with Keturah. And the second genealogy in verses 12 through 18, those are Ishmael's descendants, 12 sons or 12 princes that are listed there. And God had promised back in chapter 17, verse 20, to bless Ishmael and to make him a great nation. And here we see God's faithfulness to his promise. These genealogies, they're easy to kind of read through really quickly, but they give us a picture of God's faithfulness. God makes promises, and he always keeps them. He promised Abraham that many nations would come from him, and God gave this to him. Now, notice that Ishmael's family history is covered in just seven verses. So seven verses there. If you look at verse 12, you see these are the generations of, of Israel. Excuse me, verse 12, the generations of Ishmael. 
Seven verses to cover his generations. And the next 10 chapters of, of Genesis go on to cover God's blessing to Isaac. So we have seven verses, 10 chapters. It shows us God's blessing, his sovereign choice, that his purposes according to election would, would stand. But while Abraham would become the father of the nation of Israel, we see here he was the father of, of many nations, a multitude of nations. He had many sons, but the story of Genesis takes a turn to focus in on one of those sons because only one son was the son of promise. Isaac was his heir, chosen by God. Abraham's descendants would be named through Isaac. That's why we see in verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. He sent away the other sons. They would not remain in the promised land as potential threats to Isaac and to what it was he was to inherit. Notice in verse 6 the direction they were sent away. East. Heading eastward. We've seen this theme throughout the book of, of Genesis. That that direction eastward is symbolic from traveling away from the promises of God and away from the presence of God. Adam and Eve, when they were banished out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin, what direction were they sent? East. Eastward. When their son, Cain, killed his brother, Abel, he was sent away. Which direction? Eastward. Away from his parents and blessing. Lot, when he separated from Abraham, he traveled east. Heading east is heading away from the promises of God. Away from the presence of God. Yet Isaac would remain in the land. God's blessing upon him. Him being the son of promise. And the key verse we see here is in verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. That's where the story of Genesis now turns to. So this section, verses 1 through 18, it's a transitional section. It transitions the story of Genesis to a new generation, beginning there in verse 19 with Isaac, where we see God's faithfulness to Isaac and to his offspring. We see God's plan of redemption. Going all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see this plan for redemption. One being sent whose heel would crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. We see this being traced now through the story of Isaac. We see God's plan unfolding through Isaac to form a people for himself, a people for his praise and glory. And now we focus in on Isaac. Well, the main idea that I want you to take away from this passage this morning is this. If you're taking notes, this is the main idea. Blessing is found in trusting God's purpose and clinging to his promises. Blessing is found in trusting God's purpose and clinging to his promises. Let me read for us the rest of Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older 
shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What, what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. As we consider this story of Genesis chapter 25, I want to draw your attention to two pictures of enduring faith that we can take away from this passage. Two pictures of enduring faith. The first picture is in verses 19 through 26. Verses 19 through 26, we see that faith patiently trusts God's purpose. Faith patiently trusts God's purpose. Well, in verse 19, we see familiar language marking off a, a generation there. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. This is the, the eighth time in Genesis that we've seen this phrase, generation. So we, we've talked about this, this intentional structure that Moses, the narrator of Genesis, uses throughout the book to move the narrative forward is this phrase, generations. The Hebrew, toledot, generations. It's structured by naming 10 of these generations, and we see this phrase here in verse 19. Now, you also saw there in verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, and that is very quickly seven verses, and then down in verse 19, we see a shift here. These are the generations of Isaac. It shows us we're beginning a new section in the book of Genesis, a, a turn in the story where we focus on Isaac and his sons. Now, if you're reading through this story for the first time, you might think, okay, Isaac and Rebekah, they received promises from God. There was this amazing story of God's providence where God brought Rebekah back to be Isaac's wife. What an amazing story of God's providence. I'm sure it goes like this. They get married. They have lots of kids because God promised them that, and they live happily ever after serving the Lord. But immediately, we see an obstacle. This isn't how things play out, where life is just easy and goes the way you want if you walk by faith. We see there are challenges and problems. In verse 21, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. She was physically incapable of having children. Now, Isaac was 40 years old when they married. For 20 years, they were unable to conceive, trying for 20 years. You see, God had promised, though, to bless Isaac. God was promised, God promised Isaac something. He doesn't promise all of us. 
He doesn't promise every Christian that you're going to have children. He doesn't promise every Christian you're going to get married and have children. That's not a promise given to you, but it was a promise given to Isaac and to Rebekah that we can take in this story and understand God had a purpose that he had planned through them. Yet his wife was, was barren. God promised to make them into a mighty nation, that kings would come from them, yet she was physically incapable of having children. And what we see here is that having children would only come by a supernatural act of God's power and his grace. Now, this story is familiar, right? It's the same situation that Isaac's mother was in with him. Sarah was barren. And we see long beyond childbearing years for her, God gave her a son, Isaac. I remember how Abram and Sarah, how they dealt with her barrenness. Very different than what we see here in Genesis 25. Sarah demanded that Abraham take her maidservant, Hagar, to take her as an additional wife and to have children through, him, through her, which is where we see Ishmael coming from. Sarah demanded Abraham take Hagar. Abraham listened to her voice rather than listening to the voice of the Lord, and they found themselves with a worldly solution that ended up in a big mess. We see this early on in the book of Genesis, infertility. We see that it comes from Genesis chapter 3, that the result of sin is death, and we see, we see bodies breaking down. We see death throughout Genesis, and we see even our physical bodies not functioning in the way that they ought to. Infertility that's pictured here is a difficult situation. It's a hard and, and sad situation. It's a situation also where one may be tempted to think that God is abandoning you. We have a model here with Isaac and Rebecca of how to deal with such pain. I love this picture that we get here. Isaac took it to the Lord in prayer. You know, prayer may not immediately change the difficulty that you face. That's not the promise that we have. In fact, oftentimes we find ourselves praying and praying and praying. I wonder how long Isaac was praying here. We just see a, a simple sentence that he prayed. But for 20 years, they were suffering through infertility and barrenness. Prayer may not immediately change the difficulty we face, but prayer immediately connects us to the God of all comfort. That's what it always will do. Prayer will always connect us to the God of heaven. Prayer will always connect us to the one who holds all things in his hand. The one who is infinitely good and wise, who's sovereign and in control. So Isaac took a much different approach than his parents did. Maybe his parents taught him that. Maybe his parents taught them from their folly and said, Here, here's what we should have done. Here's what we wish we would have done. We don't know. We can only speculate, but we see that he handled it differently. He took his pain. He took his difficulty to the Lord. A situation that could not be changed by any human effort, he took it to the Lord in prayer. It was a step of faith. It was a step of trusting God, of praying in light of God's promises. Well, this story, it's a beautiful display of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility at work. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they're not opposed to one another. They, they sit side by side. J.I. Packer calls them friends. They coexist. We might feel a tension between the two, but they sit side by side in the scriptures, and so therefore we should have a paradigm in our lives that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. I love the picture that we get here, that God had already promised Isaac that he would make him into a mighty nation, 
that kings of nations would come from him. But this promise did not lead Isaac to passivity. If you really believe God's promises, it's never going to result in passivity. What we see here with Isaac, he's not disengaged from activity in the Lord. This promise led him to act in prayer. This promise led him to deeper fellowship with the Lord in prayer. You see, Isaac laid hold of God's promise by praying. His faith was active. Again, an example for Christians. If we're going to patiently trust God, we must be busy in prayer. Again, patiently trusting God doesn't mean we just kind of sit around and fill our thumbs and say, well, God will just decide to do this whenever he wants to. That's not what Isaac did. Isaac had an actual promise that children and descendants were going to come and led him to activity and prayerfulness. And so if you trust the sovereignty of God, you'll be busy about his work. You'll be busy in prayer. You'll be busy in evangelism. You'll be busy giving yourself to obedience. You'll be busy giving yourself to fighting against temptation, trying to grow in your faith, trying to learn more about the Bible, seeking to grow in your knowledge of God. We also have an example here for for prayer. We, We must pray according to God's promises. That's what Isaac was doing. God had given him a promise of descendants. He was praying in light of that. Well, for you and I, Christian, we're called to pray just like this, to pray in light of God's word and his plan for all Christians. You don't know all of his sovereign plan for your life. You just, you don't. There's a hidden secret will in the future. And oftentimes, you graduate college and wonder what job should I pursue? Who should I marry? You have a general picture of what it looks like to serve God, but that specific will, which job, which person, it's not something that you can know in the future, like know five years from now, this is the person I'm supposed to marry. But we're called to pray in light of God's general promises in the Word. See, we, throughout the Bible, we have precious promises that we can recall and pray. They're, they're general promises that are specifically given to everyone who's put their faith in Jesus. Now, I plan to close this sermon today doing this very thing, but let me give you just a little bit of a taste of it now. If you find yourself struggling with fear and loneliness, a great step to take is to pray, to pray a promise of God. Something like this from Jesus in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Take that promise, lay hold of it by prayer, and ask the Lord for comfort that's found in the presence of his son Jesus, who's always with you, even to the end of the age. That's a promise you can take to the bank in any moment, every day. You see, Isaac took his circumstances to the Lord in prayer, and look what happened after prayer, at the end of verse 21. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God's plan, it unfolded through prayer. Conception, it happened after prayer. Again, consider that God had already ordained that Isaac would become a mighty nation. He had already chosen Isaac, yet we see that God used Isaac's prayer for his purpose to unfold. He responded to Isaac's prayer, and he granted it. It's important to note, Rebekah conceived after prayer. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, prayer is some of our most important work. 
It's some of our most, it's central to our ministry as a church. It's some of the most important work that we do. And we have to be sure in prayer. God answers prayer. Again, one of the, the deepest motivations for me in prayer is to know God answers prayer. I love praying through the pastoral prayer. I mentioned that last week. Uh, this week, I often meet in a, a lunchtime prayer group with some men here at the church. I love the end of the prayer time, looking at the things we prayed, asking the question, how might God choose to answer these prayers we just lifted up? It motivates me to pray more, knowing that God answers prayer. As Pastor H.B. Charles puts it, it happens after prayer. It's the title of his book. It's downstairs on our new book table. There's only five copies of it left. Go and get them. I'd love to see them sold out after today's service, not because we make a single penny off those books, but simply because they put good resources in your hands to help you grow as a Christian. H.B. Charles says it happens after prayer. Well, do you want to grow in your faith? It happens after prayer. Do you want to see someone come to know Jesus? It happens after prayer. Do you want to know God more? Do you want to love him more? Do you want to obey him more? It happens after prayer. Do you want to see victory in temptation? Victory over sin in your life? It happens after prayer. Are you in need of spiritual strength to endure trials and difficulties presently going on in your life? Well, it happens after prayer. If you feel discouraged, that happens. Being encouraged, it happens after prayer. And sometimes, if you feel too discouraged and weary to pray, ask another member of this church, hey, can you pray with me? Can you pray for me? Come see me right here afterwards. I would love to pray for you. I pray for people every week. It would be my honor to pray for you and to pray with you after this service. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're not going to grow spiritually. We're not going to grow in our faith if we are not praying. I love the picture that we have here of Isaac. God had ordained something to come to pass, and Isaac prayed, and God worked through that prayer. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, I want you to look back on your life. Take some time, maybe even this week, to look back on your life and consider how God answered prayers in your life to shape your story today. Consider how him even not answering some of your prayers, like some of those prayers we left up where we get a no. How that no was just a path God used to an even better yes than we had prayed for. I even think about the story of this church. There were other places we were praying to replant with. And God said no to those other places because it was his plan for us to be here. How much better his plan was. I'm sure you can think of dozens of stories in your life if you gave time to think that. Things you asked for, a job you asked for, maybe even a person that you asked would become your husband or wife, and God chose to answer that prayer with no because he had an even better yes planned for you. That should encourage us, keep praying, keep asking, and when we lift up those requests, keep trusting, keep submitting to God's goodness and his wisdom and his timing. Well, Rebecca, conceiving children, it was something that could only be accomplished through God's power. And Isaac reached out for God's power through prayer. And Jacob and Esau, her, being, her conceiving those twins, they were supernatural provisions from the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that God operated in such a way that he chose that both Abraham and Isaac married barren women? It was his plan. Plan for his descendants, he chose that both of them would marry women physically incapable 
of having children. In both situations, God overcame their barrenness to clearly display his power and his plan to form a people for himself. In other words, God designed a plan that would maximize his glory, that would display his power and his glory in an even greater way. In both situations, he overcame their barrenness to display his power and his grace and that his purposes would stand. And imagine the impact that had on the original audience, the people of Israel. They could look back and they could recognize that their existence as a nation was entirely the result of God's might, of his power. You know, all of the beginning of the family of God experienced barrenness, I think, to, to further show that it was God's purpose to accomplish redemption. It was God's purpose to accomplish the line of Christ. As you keep tracing the line of Abraham and Isaac, where do you get in the New Testament? To Jesus. The beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, pointing to Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, Jesus came from a lineage that could only have occurred supernaturally. You know, in the Old Testament, the people of God, they were a result of a supernatural act. It's important to get that. Isaac, result of a, a supernatural act. Jacob, who would become Israel, the result of a supernatural act. Barren women do not have children. Only God could bring about life in a barren womb. Well, consider that in the New Testament, the people of God are also a result of a supernatural act. Those who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus tells Nicodemus they've been born again. Only God can bring about spiritual life in a spiritually dead person. That's why we see throughout the New Testament, becoming a Christian, that moment of conversion is referred to by the Apostle Paul, often in the book of Ephesians, as being made alive in Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, it should bring you comfort this morning that your salvation is not based on your merit. It's not based on your, your wisdom, good choices that you made years ago to listen to what you were taught and heard, and you put those into practice. Your salvation is not based on any merit from yourself. Your salvation is entirely an act of God. And the reason that brings us comfort as Christians is because if that's the beginning of our faith, it's how our faith will persevere as well. That it's only through the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us through faith in Jesus Christ that we are guaranteed to be preserved and therefore to endure until the end. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you can rejoice this morning that God alone has saved you by his grace alone, taking you from being dead in your sins to being made alive in Jesus Christ. In other words, the most important work has already been accomplished. Certainly there are things for us to do in the Christian life. Certainly there are imperatives that we should consider that by God's grace and the power of his spirit, we, we see ourselves able to keep commands in God's word. But brothers and sisters, let's not lose light of this truth. The greatest work that needed to be done has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The payment for sin that you and I couldn't possibly take care of was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing was left unfinished with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later. And what it means to trust is to rest, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
See, the New Testament people of God, you and I, brother and sister in the Lord, who've been baptized upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you exist because of a supernatural act of God and His Holy Spirit making you alive in Christ. Well, as the story of Genesis 25 continues, we see that not only was Isaac devoted to prayer, but Rebekah was devoted to prayer as well. Look at verse 22. While she was pregnant, she was in great pain. Verse 22 reads, the children struggled within her. That doesn't mean that, that, merely was, you know, that Rebecca was merely pregnant with twins and it was, it was uncomfortable. Some of you know what that's like, to be pregnant with twins. Right? That can be uncomfortable, right? Especially if you try to come and sit in these pews during that pregnancy. That would be hard to slide in, right? There's, there's pain that's associated not just with childbearing and delivery, but also uh, expecting children. That's not what's going on here. There's an extraordinary type of pain that is given here with these twins struggling within her. That word struggling literally translates to crushing. So basically the picture is they are fighting in the womb. There was a severe pain she was experiencing, and verse 22 says her response to that was she went to inquire of the Lord. Again, her response is to pray. Well, well, let me ask you this question, Christian. How often do you take your pain to the Lord? Something simple here. She experienced physical pain. She wanted to know why. She took it to the Lord in, in prayer. An important note, I don't want to pass by. You're invited by God to take your pain to the Lord. Take your physical pain to the Lord. Ask Him for comfort and help. Take your emotional pain to the Lord. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Hear this as an invitation. Brother and sister, the Lord, you have access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ, there's a boldness, a gift you've been given to take any request before the Lord. Rebecca felt pain. She took it to the Lord in prayer. Well, notice the Lord's reply again. It came after prayer. His reply came after prayer. If you've read this story before, you probably know the oracle there in verse 23, but don't skip over the detail there. The Lord spoke in response to her inquiry through prayer. This oracle in verse 23, it reveals that there were two nations in her womb, two sons that would become the head of two different tribes, and this conflict they were having already in the womb, it showed the division and conflict they would have on an ongoing basis. This conflict we even see in the delivery of the twins, that even as they are being delivered, they struggle with one another. We see that Esau came out first, his name meaning red, and then came Jacob, the, the younger one holding the heel, of his older twin brother, there in verse 26, we see that Moses links Jacob's name to grabbing the heel. So, so the name Jacob, simply put, can mean heel grabber. He's grabbing the heel, and this heel grabbing is a picture, even of, of what would come, him trying to snatch the firstborn position away from his brother. That happening even there in the birth canal. Their future was one of conflict and division. Now, the oracle from the Lord in verse 23, it also told the future that one would be stronger than the other. The surprising ending there, the older shall serve the younger. All of that determined before they were even born. The natural order would be the oldest son was the heir. Yet God had different plans here. 
He had a different choice that he was going to make. He wasn't bound to work in any way. God can do whatever he pleases. He's sovereign and control and authority over everything. He rules, so he writes the rules, and he has the power to choose. His choice here was for the older to serve the younger. God chose Jacob. And this story of God choosing Jacob, it's one of the clearest displays of God's saving grace in the pages of the Bible. We see here again that God's salvation is by grace alone, not by any human merit. There is no condition by which he elects someone to faith and salvation. So it's not simply that God just looks in the future and kind of knows what's going to happen in someone's life and he chooses. What we see right here is before they were born, God already had a plan. His purposes according to election will stand. We read this morning in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul uses this passage and he reflects on this to point to that God elects some to come to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. And again, that could be a controversial passage, and I'm not getting into all of it today, but it's pretty clear. Election is election. God chooses. Why did God choose Jacob? Because he's good, he's wise, and he's sovereign. He had a purpose. His purpose will stand. It was his choice. He chose Jacob simply because God chose him. We see here that from the beginning to the end, the comfort we find in election, salvation is God's mighty work. It begins with him, and it ends with him. Well, this account of Jacob and Esau's birth, it teaches us about God's sovereign grace, to trust God's sovereign grace. I've used that word sovereignty a lot. You can think about the sovereignty of God like this. It's the fact that he is the Lord over creation. As sovereign, he exercises his rule. In other words, everything happens according to his plan and intention. And that brings God's people comfort, that God has control over all things, and therefore nothing can prevent God from accomplishing his good purposes. And brother and sister, if we are to grow in our faith, pray and ask God to help you patiently trust his purposes. Pray and ask God to help you grow as a prayerful person. Well, I want us to consider a, a second picture of faith here in verses 27 through 34, a second picture of enduring faith. Verses 27 through 34, we see faith clings to lasting spiritual blessings. Faith clings to lasting spiritual blessings. Well, this last part of the chapter, it fast forwards to much later in the lives of Jacob and Esau where they are grown men. And Moses contrasts how different the twins are. So Esau is a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field, which kind of sounds a little bit like Cain. Jacob, a quiet man, dwelling in his tents. Their different personalities build up to the conflict that they have. And we get a hint of that in verse 28, where we see that Isaac loved Esau, and for a pretty shallow reason. He liked to eat his game. Pretty shallow at that point. Again, it doesn't paint Isaac in a good light. It would be really the Lord and his grace that would sustain this blessing and this promise through Isaac. Yet Rebecca, we see, she loved Jacob. This partiality from the parents is not being commended here. It's being described. I think even showing that this partiality aggravated the conflict. 
While Jacob and Esau, they were two different men, rivals of sorts. The main distinction drawn out between the two is not their personalities, but their destiny. The two different destinies that God had planned for them. And this part of the story tells us how Jacob came to be heir over his older brother. How it was that the older would end up serving the younger. Well, it does seem premeditated that Jacob was just happened to be there cooking stew when his brother Esau came in exhausted from working in the field, demanding to have some of that red stew. Jacob had a plan. His plan was to ask for the birthright. He wasn't asking for money. He wasn't asking for some of the game that Esau had hunted. He wasn't asking for some of the produce of the field. He knew what he wanted. He had a plan. He wanted the birthright. The birthright was the status that would belong to the firstborn. So the firstborn would become the head of the household, the heir of the estate. No question what was happening here. Jacob was grabbing for the heel in this moment. Now Esau, notice he doesn't struggle with this request. He reasons fairly quickly in verse 32 that he's about to die and says, what use is a birthright to me? I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think it's true that he's about to die. I don't think that, you know, he's about to pass out dead and the only thing that can save him is a cup of red stew and some bread. I think this is just a picture. He's exhausted, sure. Hungry, sure. Tired, famished, perhaps, but not about to drop dead. What we see here is that Esau is not concerned with God's blessing. He's not concerned with God's blessing to come to him. He's living in the moment. He's kind of like an atom, consumed by his passions and what looks good and appealing to the eyes. He sees something and he's ready to take it. Even Esau's name given in verse 30, Edom, which meant red after red stew, even the red hairy kind of creature they looked like when he was born. That name Edom, it, it sounds like Adam, Edom, Adam, the, the same consonants as, as Adam. Like Adam, Esau sees, and he desires, he wants, and like Adam, he is willing to give up eternal blessing for a taste, for a cup of stew and some bread. He's willing to give up blessing from the Lord. Now, both Jacob and Esau, they come away from this episode in a negative light. Neither one demonstrates character that would commend them. Again, we see that, that God's choice of Jacob is not because of anything that he's done or any character that he has. It's solely because of God's grace. There is no merit that either one of them could claim before God. Now, if you grew up like I did here in this story, you may have thought about like Jacob, he was kind of like a hustler. He was a swindler. He was, he was tricky. He was, he was crafty. And that Esau got taken advantage of in his moment of weakness. But that's not what Moses tells us here. It's not what happens in this passage. Esau didn't sell his birthright simply because Jacob took advantage of him and Jacob was tricky or because he was really going to die. Verse 34 tells us why Esau gave up such a tremendous blessing. Look at the end of verse 34. Esau despised his birthright. That's why he gave it up. He despised it. To despise something means to treat it with contempt. In other words, to view it as worthless. Esau wasn't merely the victim of a scam. Moses gives us the picture that, that Esau, he, he saw no value. He didn't care about this birthright. 
Not only does he lack concern about his birthright, he despises it. And if anything positive can be said about Jacob in this story, we at least see that he valued and prized the birthright. He saw some value in it, while Esau saw nothing, thought it was worthless. Esau displayed contempt for all that God had promised to Abraham and his family line. Esau did not believe the word of God. He had no interest in the promises of God. Living for the moment was more attractive than living for the promises of God. He despised what was eternal and lived for what was temporary. I think you can trace with this, there is a lesson here for Christians. You can't live for the moment and what is of lasting value. You can't build your life around this present world and live for the next. Look out, Charlotte Christians, look out. Plenty of opportunities to build your life around what is temporary here in the city of Charlotte. It is a city of great wealth. It is a city with lots of money flowing through it. It is a city where many may be tempted to think, I can live for Jesus plus money, even though Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters, no one can serve both God and money. May we be sensitive, brother and sister in the Lord, to the, the, the things that tempt us that may not seem like they're that bad on the surface. Those kind of apple pie type of temptations that we may grow desensitized to. The lesson, I think, is clear from Esau. You cannot live for the moment, for this present world, and for the world that is to come. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, we read that this morning, he looked back on the story of Esau and referenced Esau when warning God's people about being driven by their passions. Let me reread this for us. In verse 15 of Hebrews 12, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The writer of Hebrews looked at this story, he pointed to Esau, and he wanted the people of God to consider the nature of sin. I've heard it put like this. Sin is always about short-term gains. It's always about short-term gains. Immediate gratification is what sin promises. Some are willing to give up their marriage for an illicit affair. Willing to give up a relationship that is meant to last as long as you both shall live. Willing to give that up and forfeit it, and throw it away for temporary pleasure, a moment of pleasure. It's the folly of sin. Some are willing to give up their integrity for cheating on their taxes to save a few hundred dollars. In other words, your integrity for sale for a couple hundred bucks. I'm thankful for my father. He, he was a good example to me in so many ways. I remember one time when he was undercharged somewhere, and he brought it to the attention of the sales clerk, and it wasn't much. I don't remember how much it was. It wasn't very much, and my dad brought it to attention that he undercharged, he was undercharged, and then the sales clerk rung it up the right way, and he paid what was owed, and my dad, when we walked away, he used that as a lesson, and he said to me something like this, son, my integrity is not worth ten dollars. 
not willing to give up my integrity for a short-term gain of $10. Isn't that the promise of sin? All about short-term gains, giving up long-term blessing for short-term gains. Sin promises gain. Sin promises joy in life. And sin has a perfect track record of never delivering on that. It has a perfect track record. There has never in the history of the world been gain through sin. Why are we tempted by it? It shows our folly. It shows that the need we have for the Lord. Sin promises again and again to bring joy in life. All it brings is death. All it brings is is maybe at best temporary pleasure for a moment that's quickly followed by pain, by grief and sorrow for those who are in Jesus. We know that grief and sorrow. It leads us to repent of our sin. Brother and sister, I wonder this morning, where are you tempted to take the short-term gain? Where in your life are you presently tempted to give up the blessing of walking in God's presence for short-term gain? Esau sold his birthright for a cup of stew because he viewed God's blessing as worthless. Well, we'll consider our sin against God. You and I sin against God when we don't see his worth. We don't see his glory, his his beauty, his, his value when we don't prize him or praise him as we should. Brothers and sisters, guard against being driven by your passions and your lusts. Guard against latching on to short-term gain while taking long-term losses. Guard against sin by clinging to the promises of God. What that means is for you and I, even as we look back, and each of us can right now probably think of failures, maybe even this week, where we gave up long-term gain for short-term gratification. And we can look back, and if we've repented of that sin, there is forgiveness for that sin. There is cleansing for that sin. We don't bear the guilt of that sin because Jesus paid for it. If we've repented of that sin, even now, as we recount those ways where we've given in to temptation to go after short-term gains and give up long-term blessing, know the power of forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, have resolve to guard against that sin and not like a dog returning to its vomit, going right back into that same sin again. Guard against sin by clinging to the promises of God. Every day, you and I have opportunities to either believe God's promises or to believe lies, promises of this present world. Could you think about walking with God like that? It's really this call to put your faith in either God's promises or in the promises of the world, which are, which are lies, to either live for what is of spiritual, lasting value or to live for the moment. Brother and sister in the Lord, remind yourself what God's promised you. I think that's a powerful weapon for us, the promises of God. It was a powerful weapon for Isaac and Rebecca. I think it's a powerful weapon for you and I in our walks with the Lord. In other words, reflect intentionally on the promises of God. Let me give you some to reflect on now. Remind yourself of this promise. Jesus has promised he's coming back. John chapter 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. If you're meditating on the return of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be sinning in that moment, right? There's no such thing as meditating on the return of Jesus and giving yourself to dishonoring him. Remind yourself of this promise. Jesus promised he's always with us. 
I read this earlier, Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remind yourself that Christ has secured your salvation. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Remind yourself of the promise in James 1, 5, God promises to give wisdom to those who ask. Remind yourself of the promise in Philippians 1, 6, God promises to finish the good work he began in us. Remind yourself of the promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that God promises to provide a way of escape in every temptation. Brother and sister, set your mind this week on the promises of God. Pick a few out. Pick some of those out. Write them down. Pick them out. Pray through them. Memorize them with another member of this church. Have them ready to use and to pray. Use them as a sword against temptation. In fact, I want to close this sermon out now, reading God's promises over you. So go ahead, you can put your notes away for a moment here. I want to ask you to bow in a posture of prayer. And even pray these passages for your own soul now, these promises, that you would lay hold of them and walk by faith. Please bow. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Father in heaven, we ask that you would strengthen our faith to believe your promises. Lord, we ask that you would draw our eyes away from the empty promises of this world and its fleeting pleasures. And Lord, we ask that you would please renew our minds to look to you and your word. Lord, we ask that you would grow us to trust you more. And Lord, we know that all of this happens after prayer. So we ask that you would grow us as a prayerful people. And even now, Lord, as we come to take the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would remind us of the blood of Jesus shed for our forgiveness his body given that we might be set free from sin and death. Strengthen us now, Lord, we ask, as we come to remember how much you've loved us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.